Welcome to the Family Biz Show. According to Family Enterprise USA, family businesses in the U.S. account for over 64% of GDP and employ 62% of the workforce. In other words, they are the backbone of our economy. But success doesn't come easy. Only 13% are operating in the third generation. The Family Biz Show is here to help. Listen in weekly to hear stories from other family businesses and industry thought leaders so that you and your family not only survive, but thrive. Welcome, everybody, to the Family Biz Show. I am your host, Michael Columbus, from Family Wealth and Legacy in Rochester, New York. How's everybody doing? We have a great show for you today. We're going to be talking about when she has the money, the three C's of financially diverse couples. And we are super blessed to be joined by Jamie and Evan Traeger Mooney. And welcome to both of you. Thank you. Great Great to to be here. As we always do on the show, what I'd love to start with is if each of you could just kind of give us your journey. How did you end up in this work and doing what you're doing today? I know, you know, very few people start their careers saying, oh, I can't wait to do work with family enterprises. Um, but maybe you did. And uh, tell us about it. We'd love to hear how you got here. Jamie, go ahead. Okay. So um, I am a clinical psychologist by training. And when I first um, got licensed and started out in the San Francisco Bay Area, I lived in a fairly affluent area. And I was amazed by not what my clients were talking about, but what my clients weren't talking about. And what they weren't talking about was money. Um, and unless they didn't have enough, then they would talk about it. But if they had enough or they had more than enough, you know, um, it was just crickets. And I think that it's really important that we are able to talk about all aspects of ourselves. And I'm always sort of suspicious when certain conversations aren't being had. So, um, you know, that, that was kind of the professional side of what got me interested in this field, but to back up, I, I'm second generation in a family business, um, part of a family foundation, um, grew up with a lot of conversations about money. My father grew up lower middle class and, you know, was really, as he called it, hungry um, to make his fortune and did a lot of open talking to us about money. So I guess that also stood in context contrast because we always talked about it but then I got into the therapy office where my clients would talk ad nauseum about sex but they weren't talking about money so I decided to really focus on the emotional impact of money wealth and privilege and it's um, you know I can set my my watch by a first session with a client 20 minutes in they'll inevitably say to me I'm so happy that I found you. I have nowhere else to talk about these things. So I always know that I'm onto something when I'm creating an open space for people to have the ability to really sort through um, often ambivalent feelings about about their wealth. Great. No, I appreciate that. So you are one of the few that really 
you dove right into that field. You may not have even known, like you said, when you started that that's where this was going, but you put your fingers on the pulse of something, you know, interesting and followed it. Good for you. Love it. Thank you. Evan, tell us about and, yourself. Well, in, in parallel, I've, uh, Jamie and I have been married now almost 30 years and I have always uh, watched and admired her career and her career path um, with a lot of interest. Uh, and uh, not only with interest on her career path, but she mentioned her family enterprise. And it turns out that I ended up working in her family business with, with my father-in-law, with Jamie's father for well over eight years and um, understood, uh, I could say more, more about Jamie's family business than Jamie herself. Uh, but one of the things I always admired was the family's openness to talk about wealth and money issues. Um, and they always did it from a, a, a values-based place. Um, there was, it, was, it was talking about money in a context of what is this money for? How does it impact us? Um, what can we do with it? And so on. Um, we can get into the, the details uh, of that and, and some of the values that, that are important to us. But um, more recently, I've only started working with Jamie in the last year or so. And that's in particular because she began a study of not just wealthy couples, but she began doing some research and study of wealthy couples where the, the woman in the couple comes to the relationship with more money. And I thought that was particularly interesting because it was my lived experience. Our um, lived experience. Our lived experience, exactly. Yes. Um, and, uh, and as part of that study of, of speaking to and doing research about couples like this that are in those circumstances, uh, I'll let Jamie explain um, some of the unique challenges of, of finding people willing to, to talk to us about that. Uh, but one thing in particular, that we do find that's pretty common is that men in particular are reluctant to talk to other people about it. Uh, there are certain things that come up for men uh, or typically come up for men uh, and they're more comfortable talking to another man who's also uh, come, come into or has similar circumstances. So I think that's where I've come in and been useful is talking to the men who are part of this study. And that's my, my recent joining of, of Jamie and her work. Great. Thank, no, thank you both. And, and Jamie, this isn't your first study. This is like, you know, you've done many studies through the years. Um, and so this is just a different twist, you know, not a different twist, but just a different take and a different, you know, study that you're doing right now. And I think that's really important because it's not talked about a lot today. Um, and so what you're doing is, is meaningful. So let's, let's set the, the frame, the foundation for this conversation. You know, it's when she has the money, exploring the unique experiences of financially diverse couples. Well, let's let talk about that a little bit. Where did that come from? I mean, you guys lived it, um, but where did you know where 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 did it come that you said you know the light went off and said I we need to study this more? Can you set that up for us? Sure. You know, it really came from Jay Hughes, Jay, and and his now wife, um, Jackie Merrill and Joni Brofman and her partner wrote um, reflections on fiscal unequals. And they talked about their experience of 
being in partnerships where the woman comes in with more money than her husband from an inheritance. And they spoke very openly and honestly about it. And it was very important for Jay, you know, it was really their reflections. It wasn't a study. It was two couples sitting down and talking about it with research. And we all know and love Jay, how he, how he does things in his brilliant mind. So, um, but he, it was very important for him that this study get expanded and that we're really, as we move, you know, um, from wealth, 1.0 to wealth 2.0 and now going into wealth 3.0 and what one of the things that's important in this switch to 3.0 is having more research-based interventions that we can bring to families so this was a topic that was very near and dear to jay's heart he knew that it was near and dear to our hearts and um i'm i feel like i'm carrying we're carrying on that legacy and jay is very much a part of uh, being an elder in the study, as is Dennis Jaffe. Great. You mentioned something that I want to make sure that our listeners heard. You said wealth 3.0, but then you, you said wealth 1.0 and 2.0. Set that up so that people understand what that means, if you don't mind. Sure. It's a concept that Jim Grubman came up with and um, did a, lo a lovely kind of retrospective of the field. Um, and um, he started, you know, wealth 1.0 was pretty unidimensional, didn't have this qualitative aspect that, that I really specialize in. It was much more about the quantitative side of wealth. Moving into wealth 2.0, where we started to have people like myself, I was the first psychologist ever, I know in the United States, I think in the world, but I, I, I'm not positive that, to be hired by a bank to work with their clients. Um, so, and that was a real shift. And, you know, Jim has a, a wonderful clip of right when I got hired, um, someone from Wells Fargo was asked to be interviewed on Squawk Box along with Jim Grubman. And the guy could not understand the concept at all. He basically said, so what do you do as a wealth psychologist? Like, are you teaching the clients how to kill their parents so you get your inheritance earlier? I mean, this is like on Squawk Box. It's not Saturday Night Live. And in the back, you know, they didn't realize this, but they had green screens. So in the back were, you know, um, they had yachts showing and Rolex watches. So it was very, very dismissive. And even... Um, you know, the next day, um, my boss's boss at Wells Fargo wrote, we have wealth psychologists with about 30 question marks in the subject line. So, you know, we were off and running on that. And now we're moving as the fields develop. Um, you and I were talking before this that something like PPI that's been around, we think, since 2009 so, you know, that also tracks the development of the field. But as the field develops, we're now moving into, well, 3.0. And one of the main tenets, as I said, is that it would be based in research. It would be more comprehensive in, in its training and um, more regimented as the field matures. 
right? So like, so wealth 1.0 is just the, the financial aspect of it. It's money as a thing where wealth 2.0 is more wealth as a thing, but the emotional side of wealth and the, the psychological impact that that has, is that for layman's terms, is that the simplistic way to say that? Yes, but it's really a progression along uh, across time. Okay. 1.0 was, you know, how we used to do things. Got it. Then, you know, I started to work at Wells Fargo in 2007. So that was some of the beginning of those shifts that a bank would even be willing and open. I mean, when I worked at Wells Fargo, we had to go up against compliance. They didn't like us to use the word relationship. They were worried that that was going to be a problematic word. So, right. you know, the field has progressed so much because a lot of the multifamily offices platforms have wealth psychologists, have somebody who's specializing in family dynamics. That's become very much um, the status quo now. Love it. So as the field matures and develops, we are becoming more robust. Okay. If, if I, I can add... Sure. If I can just add, as a layman, one of the things that I, I picked up, and Jamie will correct me if I'm wrong here, but one of the main differences I've learned between Wealth 2.0 and 3.0 is also a shift in the attitude towards how to work with people and talk about the wealth, in that 2.0, there were these common themes that people assumed was common knowledge and correct, like the phrase shirt, shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations, and that every culture has a similar saying like that. And it was always approaching dealing with wealth and relationships with wealth and to wealth and, and, and uh, people with wealth in relationships from a negative standpoint and how do we treat the sickness um, as opposed to 3.0, which is taking a positive look at what works. And that's hence the research-based uh, uh, work and we look at best practices and there are many, many examples of couples who have healthy relationships with each other and with their money. And if we can find <clears throat> more and more of those examples and utilize those as positive examples of ways to learn and mirror uh, and mimic the positive aspects and the positive behaviors, that's the best way to move forward. Awesome, thank you both of you. That, a lot of times, you know, when we start these conversations, um, we get, you know, dig, we dig into what we know and what we feel comfortable with, but the people listening don't always understand the background. So I really appreciate you taking the time to set this up properly. So let's, let's dive in. And what we're, you know, talking about is that there are a variety of values and approaches when it comes to money and family enterprises. Um, and that you guys have identified basically the three C's when it comes to navigating, you know, this territory of, you know, whether you want to call it, uh, you call it financially diverse couples, which I think is so much better, nicer than financially unequals, right? Yeah, yeah, we're just right. diverse. Well, and that's a, an example of moving from 2.0 to fiscal unequals already comes in with an a priori you know, um, bias versus financially diverse means everybody has something to right. offer and bring to the to the relationship. Love it. Um, so where do you want, you know, we're, we're talking about doing this, you know, 
having these conversations with love and compassion and you've identified the three C's. So do you wanna set that up and, and walk us through how you guys came to these, you know, things? How many people have you, so far, how many interviews or how, many, how much research has been done so far as you're doing this? I think that's probably good for us to know. Yeah, I think that's a great place to start because we are hitting up against the challenge of the taboo. Um, that many people, um, it's it's very it's been very challenging to get to get participants. At, you know, across the board, the participants that we've had, we've interviewed about twenty people. The participants that we've spoken to, um, I think, have gotten a lot of value out from it, and you know, mostly because it's the first opportunity they've really openly had to talk about this. It's a completely confidential study. We scrub everything, um, but you know the interviews are one on one, but via Zoom, so they have that opportunity to to look at their experiences, and they're done individually. It's not the couple together. Um, but I've been surprised how many people, um, and it's both the wives and the husbands, um, who have said, "Well, I'm happy to do it, but I can't even ask my partner." because this is too much of a hot topic for us. This is too, we, we can't even talk about it. And they've been married for a long time. So, you know, more and more, it's just like that silence that I saw in my therapy room. Um, when people don't want to confront something, can you imagine living in a marriage where there's such a big topic that you can't even address that you might not want to even participate in a study? But the study is really um, geared to understanding the lived experience so that we can develop programming and support for couples. We know that it's an issue. You know, I know it from my practice. I know it, I hear it from my colleagues all the time. Um, we know that women are gaining control of, of more and more assets. Um, and that as this large wealth transfer happens, women will have even greater percentage of um, control. So, you know, it's this, a little bit of a conundrum. So these are kind of the preliminary things that we're starting to see in the, in the, in the research. Evan, do you want to talk about the, start to introduce the three C's? Um, sure, but also I just also want to add about in particular about reluctance of couples to speak about this. The study is really set up to look at best practices of couples in the relationship with each other and what works. I think one of the things that we that we don't address by design, but the but that is a source of the reluctance of people to talk about it is culture overall, uh, the, the negativity and the stigma that is being attached, especially in the last several years, towards people with wealth, towards the wealthy. And people are very afraid to come out, to come out of the closet. Even though this study is completely confidential, no names are revealed, people want to keep their heads down. Um, and it's, it's frustrating um, and yet understandable. Um, but I think that that's a major, major issue 
that uh, <laughs> that I think we'll continue to uh, to come up against, and hopefully we'll be able to uh, to overcome as well, and get more and more people to be willing to speak to us uh, about it. Um, as far as the three C's, um, Jamie, uh, as uh, as she's noted, is a clinical psychologist and comes at it from a very uh, uh, psychological point of view and family systems and so on. Um, and uh, my background is more in, uh, well, I've got a business background, but I've also got a passion for Middle East studies. And what I've been working in the last uh, 10 years now is conflict resolution in the Middle East. Um, and one of the things that, uh, that I've been looking at is uh, best practices and ways and methods of dealing with conflict. So um, it's interesting that the three C's are very much uh, Jamie's baby and and it's it's jamie's concept um and i i use different words for some of the concepts um so i i actually think jamie it probably makes more sense for you to introduce the three c's and talk about them uh as much as you like and then i can go into sort of the perspective i'm coming to it with and the things that i've learned in uh in my work in conflict resolution and uh and working with uh building shared i i'm working on more a societal level but it works for interpersonal level as well i think um so great great and you know evan pointed out we went we walked our dogs before this so we were talking about this that while these three c's come out of our research they're really broadly applicable in the field um you know it, it i don't think these are unique to um, financially diverse couples where the woman's inherited money and comes in with more. I, I think, you know, and, and I would even go so far as saying these are probably broadly applicable in um, relationships in general. Um, so the first one is courage. Courage to start to have the conversation when you know that um, there is a difference and it might be challenging. Um, I, I see it all the time with my clients, you know, um, whether they're before getting married or after getting married, it, it, it's just a subject they don't want to talk about. They sort of dance around it. Um, oftentimes it doesn't really even come up until, um, there's a conversation about a prenup and then really things are laid on the table because there's a legal agreement of, um, how much so oftentimes that's that's the first time the woman is seen really what she stands to inherit or um, has had the transparency given to her so having the courage to bring up a conversation knowing that it might be challenging that and and not only to bring it up but to continue to have these conversations you know I, i've had conversations as i said earlier um I had one conversation with a client who was talking to me in a whisper outside of her bedroom and she made it at a very early time because she didn't think her husband would be home, but she was so uncomfortable talking about things because he was in the next bedroom. So, you know, it's, it's really taking that courageous step of saying, I want to be able to talk about all aspects of our relationship. The second one is curiosity. It's a way to come into a conversation in a, in a way that um, open, continues to open up the conversation. So I would 
contrast curiosity to certainty. If you come into a conversation and you're certain that you're right and you know how it is and this is how it has to be, that shuts down a conversation. But it, you know, I see you're nodding. So. Oh, I, lo I, lo I love this because I, you know, when I'm talking with my family, who I will tell you, you know, and we're, we, we love each other. We do a really great job of being together when we're together. It's like we were just together yesterday, even it's been, if it's been six months. But having the courage to be curious is really tough inside of our family. And, and, I, and I'm trying really hard to do that just within the, the, you know, the, the two or three generations that we have because we have Columbus Family Vacation that we've been doing for 22 years. And some of us, many of us would like to see that continue even after my parents are gone. But without having the courage to have some difficult conversations because when you get to 20 plus people, guess what? You're not all the same, right? And so you need to start being curious rather than, I love what you said, you know, being curious rather than certain. Yeah. And, and I'll give you a really easy thing that you can start to train yourself to, and even talk to your family about. Shifting out one easy word makes a world of difference. So when you listen to somebody and then you want to say something different, what do you often say? You say, oh, I hear you, but, and then you go on with your opinion. So when our brain hears, but, it automatically gets defensive because, but symbolizes that now you're gonna say something different. So if you just change that certain, that simple word to and, so, I hear that you're really interested to go to Mexico for the family vacation. And I'm wondering next year, could we do something a little bit more, you know, a little bit closer to where we live? So it, it leaves, you know, you're always looking for how can I continue to open up and you can watch to see how people are engaging because when certainty starts to creep in, when curiosity diminishes, people start to shut down. You can see it, you know, versus when you say something and they stay engaged. Sure. So those, those are some easy tricks. And then the third thing is communication, which is really the umbrella to, the, to all of this, is that we need to be having more transparent, open conversations about money. At the end of the day, money is a neutral form of barter. That's all it is. But we have made it out to be something, we deicize it and we make it so large um, and we don't talk about it. So when we can be in communication and stay in communication because we remain curious, you know, even if, if Evan were to say something and I, did, I disagree with it, Again, it's that opportunity to come to curiosity. Wait, I think that you said this. Am I understanding it correctly? Can you help me understand more? Um, as opposed to, I can't believe you said that. How can you think that? Um, which sometimes also happens in our house. <laughs> happens never. <laughs> um, I, I think uh, 
Jamie laid laid those three C's out uh, beautifully. Uh, one example we were discussing the two of us earlier is, um, uh, I, I guess it's a, a parallel when you've got cultural differences in a couple in a relationship. Um, especially with children, you start to talk about how you're going to raise the kids. And if it's, say, two different religions and one uh, spouse wants to raise the kids within their faith and the other says fine and they're OK with that. But then a few years go by and then the, they want to have a certain the, the other spouse wants to have a certain celebration that they had growing up. And maybe the other spouse is threatened by that. Um, and rather than asking the spouse, why is that important to you? They shut down or they get confrontational or they get certain. Um, and, I, and that I think is so critical. And it's something also that, I'm, that, that I see um, <clears throat> in parallel when, when people in conflicts, societal conflicts also, uh, community conflicts, and we're seeing it more and more today in uh, in, in everyday society, unfortunately, um, when we're certain that the other side is simply wrong, we're not willing to listen, but it's not just about listening. It's also about exploring, and this gets to the curiosity, it, it's exploring why. Why is this important to you? And, and it may be that the person advocating for something might not even be sure themselves why. But if their spouse or if their partner is, has the courage and the curiosity to ask and help explore that together, they'll get at the underlying values. And that's one of the things that I see in societal conflicts is what we call competing values. No one is wrong and no one is right, or maybe no one is wrong and everyone is right. What happens when both of you are right, but the va values themselves are competing? What do you do? And you need to not shy away from that, but you need to actually dig into it and dig it in, dig into it, obviously, with curiosity and with openness um, and with respect. But until you do that, you're not going to get at the underlying values that are important to each of the, the people involved. So when you're in a relationship in particular, clearly you're there because you love each other and you value each other. And you want to be able to respect and understand and value the other person's values. But unless you're able to talk about those things, and if it's about money, then you, you talk about, say, what it, what, the way that you were brought up. Um, so perhaps the, the spouse, in, in this case, where she has the money, the, the husband may, might have come from a family that didn't have much money growing up. And one of the values may have been, for example, um, making sure that they were not wasteful whatsoever. And that was critically important. So maybe when it comes time for, the, for, the, for buying presents, say at holiday time with the children, there's a lesson to be learned and some values to be explored together. Um, because now all of a sudden you've got a family that has wealth and the husband is not used to spending that money on what he may see as frivolous gifts. And the, the wife may say, but this is what I've always done and I wanna shower, or maybe the grandparents are coming and saying they wanna be able to shower their love by, by providing very nice gifts. And unless you can have that conversation, um, it's gonna potentially and probably 
lead to conflict at the very least bad feelings and, and potentially resentment and, and bigger problems down the road. Love it. Thank you, Evan. You know, you said something that I just want to, and earlier we talked about, though we're talking about couples, that this is applicable in just about any relationship. And as soon as you're talking about gifts, I, my, you know, the first, what went through my head is a conversation I had with my mother. Mom, it was very important for her at birthdays and holidays and whatnot, when it was gift giving time, in her opinion, to write a check and to, you know, make sure that, you know, everybody was equal. And, you know, I went to her one time, you know, several times I'd said, just so you know, you know, we're okay. We don't need the money, you know, and, and but I never had a conversation with her. I just was making a statement and then read Jay's book, Cycle of the Gift, and, you know, taking, you know, what you're talking about and, and opened up that conversation. I said, hey, mom, why is it important to you? Because it's not important to me to receive them. I, it, just based on where we're at in life right now. Um, and she said, and the story went back to sitting at the dinner table with her parents when she was a little girl that her father had, you know, they would have a, you know, they were um, you know, Irish Catholic. So there was a, you know, a, a ham steak that was, you know, filled the plate and they would cut it into four so that each person had a quarter of that ham steak and that her father would then fill his stomach with as much bread as he could butter and eat the bread. And so, you know, they were never in a position where they could give. And so for her, it was just this coming to fruition and being able to, you know, to be able to share what she had because she wasn't always able to share. Her family didn't come from a place where they could share. And as soon as I heard that, I was able to say, that's really cool. That's, that's good for you, mom. You know, I'm okay. And you know what? We will use this gift wisely and, and do some things that maybe we wouldn't have done otherwise. And that made that conversation different. I love it. I think you both great are bringing, example. sorry, Ev, go ahead. No, I just said it's a great example. I, I love the story too. So go ahead. Yeah. I, I think you're both bringing up such important points. And I want to um, also say that so frequently, because we don't talk openly about money, we don't even know where those drives come from. Like, it, I, I'm curious for your mom, did it take her a little bit of time to really think about, well, where does this come from that I want, that I want to be able to give the checks, you know, so often. And that, that's really what happens with couples is, um, you know, maybe you're using the same language, you know, like, for example, um, I work with a couple that was a, about to break up right before they got married because they they were having trouble planning their honeymoon. And, you know, the wife said, well, I want to stay at a, a nice hotel. And she's thinking this. And he said, well, I want to stay at a nice hotel. He's thinking down here, they're using the same words, but nice, you know, means something very different. And they don't even understand where in their history that definition of what a nice hotel is because they've never explored these money stories. Um, there's, you know, most of us operate from a, such an unconscious level around our money stories, our money scripts. And unless we start to peel back, you know, we say peel back the onion. I don't like that. I like peel back the artichoke because you get to that delicious heart 
you know, as opposed to something stinky. But if you peel back the layers and understand and, and then infuse it with this beautiful story like your mother did about what she's able to provide to you versus what she was able to have growing up, um, it, it's so much, everybody's so much richer for it. Yeah. And, and go back to your, your three C's, that word, you know, implanting that word courageous or being, you know, having the courage to open these conversations up is super important. And the, the curiosity um, to, to be wondering what's going on for the other person rather than I know what's happening for me, right? But sometimes we don't. That's what I'm trying to say also. In, uh, yeah, in this okay. realm of money, we don't even understand what's happening for ourselves because we haven't done that inner exploration. Um, so, you know, we know that money's the number one thing that couples fight about and not couples with great amount of wealth, couples across the board. So, uh, so clearly there is that need for for courage to bring up those conversations, but courage also to look inside ourselves, as Evan said about what's the why that's really underneath um, the giving. It wasn't just the giving of the check, but the, the reasoning behind it um, that really made it beautiful for all of you. Yeah. I, uh, and, and and made it okay for her to keep doing it because you you had underlying feelings that I don't know if it was resentment or you were bugged by it but you just you didn't like it seemingly uh, yeah. from the way you described it and it it got in the way of your relationship with your own mother um, and by talking about it and understanding her why you're able to actually build your relationship and become even closer you appreciate her that much more. Um, so it's, a, I, as I said, I think it's a fabulous example. And just to say one more thing, sorry. Sure. We know what happens when you don't take that courageous act because we've seen it so frequently when, you know, and Jay writes about it in, in the book and Keith and Susan, when gift giving becomes a transaction, somebody, you know, does end of the year gifting it becomes a transaction. There isn't a conversation about it. And there might be resentment on the side of the receiver. And then there becomes resentment on the side of the giver because the receiver doesn't react. And the giver, you know, feels like, well, I just sent, you know, X amount of money to you and I'm not getting a response. So this vacuum opens up of not knowing and we always fill a vacuum with our own ideas. We don't necessarily fill a vacuum with the truth, but what we think. So, you know, in, in not knowing what your mother was meaning by sending you a check, you filled it in with your own, as Evan said, with whatever your own ideas were. But when you checked in with her, it was something completely different, which made it um, nice then for you to receive that money. Right. And, and so I'll fill in the gap for people that are, may, might be curious what I was feeling. I remember when I had to look up to see zero. I remember being broke. And I remember, you know, you know, we, even though dad had done well, we were still, you know, dad was first generation of creating wealth. 
And as the oldest child, I didn't see that and did everything, you know, on my own. And so to me, receiving the gift was kind of like, uh, you still need this. And I'm like, I don't need it. And, right. and you so there was a little resentment. Yeah. No, but we had to get, you had to dig into it to figure it out. Um, I, I love this conversation. I want to talk more about the curiosity piece because I think it's so crucial for people, again, in, in, in this diverse couples, financially diverse couples conversation, it's being curious about the why I think is so important. Um, my, my wife and I have a deal that we've put together and we've had to do a lot of work. You know, we talk about we were financially diverse, um, not dramatically, but just, you know, and there was times, times throughout our marriage where she was making more than me and a time when I was making more than her. Um, she's Jewish, I'm Catholic, um, and it's a second marriage. So she has three, you know, three kids, I have four. So you talk about uh, lots of diversity and lots of different things it caused lots of friction through that period of time. And um, what we realize is that we're not always emotionally mature. And, I, and what, I, what I mean by that is that, you know, I, I look at emotional maturity and being able to say, I know what I'm feeling and I know why I'm feeling it. And there was times when, you know, when both of us have been feeling something and, you know, 10 years ago, we might've, been reactive to what we were feeling rather than saying, Hey, I'm feeling something right now. I need to be curious about my own feelings and I need to figure out what's going on for me before I can, you know, have an emotionally mature conversation with you. So the curiosity needs to go both ways. And the communication I, 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 right. to say, to say, I can't talk about this right now. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> I was just going to say, I, I think you're absolutely right. I count myself incredibly lucky that my wife is who she is, in addition to also being a psychologist. So I could actually use Jamie and, and engage with Jamie in order to help me understand my own issues and feelings, whatever they were, but in most cases and not always. But then if we're specifically talking about the issues that are brought up by by the uh um by the wealth especially as a man with traditional roles of the man wanting to be the breadwinner or seeing himself as needing to be the breadwinner or having uh or providing uh for the family and so on uh these are issues that are not easy to talk about from a man's perspective and um and the fact is, unfortunately, even psychologists, even therapists don't know how to necessarily don't know how to don't necessarily know how to work with their own clients about that. So having those resources, and that's one of the reasons for this study, again, to go back to that, is that we want to do this to help people, professionals be better prepared to, to be a resource for people to talk about that. So you're, I think you're absolutely right that emotional, we can call it emotional maturity, uh, or simply just being human. There are going to be times when, when we're just not as in touch with our own feelings as we, as we are at other times, and things get emotional, and they get heated. Um, and having the ability, having the maturity to step back and talk about it, if it's with friends, if it's with 
uh, with colleagues uh, or, or with professionals or with your spouse. Uh, it's critical to be able to do that. And that I think is both the courage and the curiosity. It, it's really all three in one, um, but it's just so important to be able to explore those feelings. And uh, I don't know, we don't have a whole lot of time left. If you wanna get into some of the, the, the more common things that perhaps are brought up in these fiscally unequal relationships, maybe we could talk about that, but. Financially diverse. Financially diverse. Did I just say unequal? I'm sorry. So <laughs> let's do that. What I, and tell me if, you know, let's, how, how do we use our time, you know, most efficiently? One, I think, you know, letting people know what other people have been feeling and thinking, I think would be helpful to, for some listeners. One, two, I think, how many more people would you like to be interviewing so that people know what that looks like, and maybe to talk about, you know, if they were to connect with you, how to connect with you, and how that works. I would think that would be really helpful for a lot of people. So, Evan, do you mind, you know, hitting a, 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 some of what you've been hearing from? If I understood this conversation, you've been talking to more of the men as you've yep. been doing it. So, from a, what are you hearing from from the men in the in these relationships? Well, I, I think one of the themes that I've seen in in the relationships where the men feel satisfied and the relationship has has stayed together um, is that the men have found their own sense of self-worth, whether it's through uh, business or some other passion. And it's also for, for me, I. I, uh, I'm not earning more money than, than Jamie will, uh, will bring to this. I'll never earn as much money as Jamie through her family business uh, will bring to our relationship. But I'm passionate about other things and I've engaged in those other things and I feel fulfilled uh, in that way. And I'm able to talk to Jamie and feel like, uh, as we say, diversity, I'm a diverse couple. So I've, uh, what one of the things I'm seeing in the, in the men that I've spoken with who seem happy in the relationship despite the financial diversity is that they have found something that they are passionate about and that they care about and that they are engaged with and that their self-worth is not just tied up in earning more money um another thing of uh i guess it, it, it's obvious but the ability to talk to their spouse about planning and doing um, one of the one of the main sources of friction can often be something that you brought up uh, the Palumbo, the Palumbo uh, family uh, Columbus family vacation. vacation. So what can often happen, and Jim Grubman talks about this in in uh, in his uh, writings as well, is that uh, it's sort of a given that the family of wealth determines where the fam where the the nuclear family is going on vacation because of course they get they get not much nicer places to go to and it's uh it's more whatever it is it, it's basically often too often assumed that the vacations are going to be with the the with her family um and uh the the couples who are able to talk about how they engaged with each other in a positive way um, and made it work and were able to communicate what, what the feelings were um, when that happened, were able to get over and, and come to, and I don't actually like to use the word compromise, 
because compromise I find implies either one or both sides are giving up on values. And I don't think that we should ever have to give up on values. We, should give, we can give up on what's important to us, but core values, I don't think we wanna give up on. Give up on. So I don't like to use the word compromise. I, I like to uh, say we, we find an accommodation or we find a solution that works for, for everyone. Uh, and I find that, uh, and I've seen uh, from the people I've talked to, from the men I've talked to, that if they're able to, um, to speak to their spouse about why, what they're feeling, what issues are coming up, and they can usually lean on examples that aren't as perhaps hot uh, or as emotional, that where they, where it, it, literally you ask a person, can you give me an example of a time when, when you were successful at having this type of conversation? And that can help them visualize having a conversation about something perhaps that's more difficult. Um, so th those are a couple examples. I hope that answered your question. Yeah, that helps get us on the right path. I think what I heard is, you know, that pursuit of happiness, that pursuit of passion, that, you know, making sure that both members of the couple um, res respect and support, you know, the other person's passions and feelings of self-worth. Like, that's great. I love that. Yeah. And, and again, it, so much of what society tells us, I think, is that our self-worth is tied up with how much money we're bringing in. Yeah. And, and I do think we need to get beyond that. Um, and it's not easy. Um, society is constantly telling us and beating us over the head with it. But we do need to get beyond that. And I think that supportive spouses on both sides from both sides uh, can help each other do that. And one of the things, and I think Jamie in her work, uh, which we didn't talk about specifically, but uh, having a mission for your money, talking about why about the money, what is it about the what is it we can do with the money or why do we have uh, why do we want to do what we're doing with the money? Um, can help us understand the value of the money, but not for money's sake, but for what it is we're doing. So philanthropy is an important lesson, uh, which is a critical lesson. Uh, I think we'll all agree for children to be raised with, especially with a family of wealth. Um, then we're talking about philanthropy. And just because the woman's family, the wife's family has brought that money to the table does not necessarily mean that she's the only one that has value there. Everyone can contribute when it comes to doing the research, having a passion for uh, certain causes and helping distribute that wealth. Um, so there are all kinds of ways that we can find value even when it's talking about the money, even though it was one spouse that, uh, whose family perhaps brought that money in. Sure, thank you. Jamie, do you wanna talk about you know, the, what you've heard from the woman's perspective? Sure. Um, I think that very similar things to what Evan's saying. Um, I, I think what's interesting with the women is to see how unformed their own relationship with money is prior to getting married. So they don't have a distinct, for the most part, a distinct sense of themselves in relationship to their wealth um, because they're young and they get married maybe at a young age. So 
they go into the relationship and they're trying to develop this, their own identity around wealth. I mean, I think it's something that um, just like we're seeing with um, racial identity development, ethnic identity development, we need to start thinking about how do we help people with their own wealth identity development? How do we, what are the phases of coming to terms with your identity as a wealth holder? A lot of times, especially we're talking about inheritors. So there's a lot of shame. There's a lot of isolation. There's a lot of hiding. Um, so those aren't a, a good basis to open up with um, courage, curiosity, and communication. Um, those haven't been demonstrated and um, they don't have a good model for that. So um, that's what I'm seeing a lot from the women is that they're having to do this sort of dual identity development. And oftentimes, um, especially if the husband then works in the family business, then maybe the husband has more of that financial acumen and certainly the business acumen um, than the wife does. So, you know, the, it, there's this sort of um, maybe balancing that one partner might actually bring the financial wealth, but the other partner has more of the ability to manage it. You know, I certainly see that in my relationship with Evan, where he, you know, when we're having now my uh, siblings and I own the family business, um, and sometimes they want to, their partners aren't as interested in being in these meetings. Um, but I really, Evan is very interested and I really rely on Evan because I know that he knows the family business so much better than I do. Um, so, it, you know, I don't want to just have that responsibility. I would rather bring him in because I trust him because, um, you know, I know that he's wise in these areas. Um, I want to also speak into, you asked a question earlier about how many people would we like to interview? Um, we really, you know, the only, there's two studies that have really happened around this. One is Jay's reflection. So those are two couples having a conversation. And then we did a beta study with Michelle McKesa, um, who looked at for her dissertation, she interviewed six couples. So we have very, very small sample size. So our goal, I mean, my, our dream goal is to have 50 couples that we, that we interview. Um, we've already interviewed, I think, about 25 people, but we don't have that many where both members of the couple have agreed to be interviewed. Um, but again, the more data points that we have, the more information that we have, the the stronger the conclusions that we draw, the better the programming that we develop can be. So, um, you know, we're not turning people away. And sometimes people say, well, how much of a difference do I have to have between, you know, my wealth and his wealth? It doesn't, what we're really looking for is, is there an emotional sense? Is it, does there cause an issue that you're, you're talking about or not talking about that's more important than the, the sheer numbers. Couples don't have to both be interviewed. 
And we're also looking at um, divorced couples as well. You know, in Michelle's study, she only looked at married couples, but I think that skews things a bit. You know, we want to know what happens um, when couples don't make it. What are the breakdowns in communication? How can we support people? So, you know, we're already seeing, and I'll, I'm sure it'll come as no surprise to you, we're seeing how even just the prenup conversation is handled can make a huge difference in developing a solid foundation upon which that marriage can be based. So if people are interested, um, they can come to the website, which our business is Wealth Legacy Group and the, the website is wealthlegacygroup.org. And there's a section on research and it's the financially diverse research. You can get more information about that. And I don't know if you then, if you can attach a, a link for people um, with the recording, Michael, but that would be great. And there's a way to contact us directly. You're welcome to contact either Evan or myself. We're happy to give people more information. Um, the, the study, the, the nuts and the bolts and bolts of it is, a 30 minute online questionnaire, and then an hour long interview. Okay. And that's, that's really the extent of the commitment. Well, I will do my best to share this with some people that I think would be perfect for your study. Um, and we happy so to, appreciate that. And happy to do that. We, let me ask a question. You know, there's I one, there's a, a few people that come to mind where it's, it's not, there, there is wealth going to be passed. It hasn't happened yet. Um, but the wife still probably makes four times what the husband makes just income wise. And how is that? Does that fit for what you're? Yeah. Okay. Perfect. Yeah. I, and uh, a lot of times the money hasn't been passed. And a lot of times, you know, one of the things when Evan and I look at well, how have we been able to maintain um, such a a strong, healthy relationship almost over almost 30 years is that even though if you looked at the balance sheet, we, we grew up with, with differences, um, the lifestyle and the values that we were brought up with were very similar. And we have, always, you know, first of all, we got together when we were very young. We met when we were 21. Um, and we've always been a couple that you know, there's really no taboo subjects that we don't talk about. You know, it's, it's not always easy conversations, but we're very open. And for us, I'm not saying this is the way that to have a successful marriage, but for us, we decided very early on that we would just combine our money and that it would always be our money. And we've, we've thought about it as our money. Um, and I think that and we don't make big decisions without the other person. Um, you know, we try to, I hope, be respectful of, of Evan's family. You know, a lot of times we also do a family trip every year. Um, but we've we've traveled many times with with Evan's family, we've traveled with the with the other in-laws. So, you know, being trying to be as inclusive as possible. I think um, have also been things that have helped us. 
you both have mentioned values several times, and I don't want to, I don't want that to go unnoticed. I want people to hear this. Is there a tool or some, you know, a way that people could actually dive in, you know, to say what are my core values? Because I think just that, if if a husband and wife each took that, you know, uh, test or whatever, you know, assessment to dig into that and just had a conversation about those things that might open up a door. Is there a tool or an assessment that you like? Yes, there's, there's a couple. Um, Dennis Jaffe has a set of, uh, of values cards. 2164 has a set of values cards. Um, you know, you can do something as simple. I think there's lists online where you just have a printout page and what I, what I do with couples is I have them, you know, build kind of a pyramid of what's your top value, what's, you know, the second and third, what's the fourth, fifth and sixth, um, and then look to see what are my individual values. So we would look at our individual values, where are we similar, where are we different, but then also to create what are, what are our value as a family, what are, you know, the Traeger Muni's what do we stand for as a as a family? What do we hope that we brought our children up with? What do we hope when hopefully not too distant future we'll have grandchildren? You know, what are our hopes to, to share those values with? And, um, you know, the more that we can concretize what those values are and then true against our behavior. So are we walking our talk? Are we, is it, are our actions consonant with the values that we hold dear? Sure. And if I, I just want to add one thing, in particular, when we're talking about raising children, and I've mentioned it already, philanthropy, even on a small scale, it doesn't matter how much money the family has, it is so critical to be able to instill positive values not just about giving. Giving is obviously one big part of philanthropy, but but a sense of responsibility, a sense of being responsible for for money for oneself. When you're talking to children, uh, it, it develops empathy and so many other good things. There's the, I can't think of anything that is, that that is a better one-stop uh, uh, um, tool for raising children in a healthy way. Take from, it oh, go ahead. I was going to say this from the man who's the uh, who's the COO of five nonprofits. So <laughs> <laughs> fair enough. Hey, uh, you you know your research stemmed from a paper that Jay wrote years ago. Um, I have a, a passion around Jay's paper, the grandparent grandchild philanthropy project, um, and so I would you know I give that paper out regularly and would love to do some more additional research around how that impact of working with the grandparents, because sometimes the parents don't always have the time, but so where the grandparents in their third act can take some of that time to pass some of that knowledge and, you know, and work with the grandchildren in a much different way than the parents might be able to. And can, there's a huge family connection. There's a values connection. And I've done this with two families thus far. One is really, done a great job with that. The other one is just starting. Um, and I, 
really excited to dig into that side of things. So Jay's paper, I would highly recommend that as well. So thank you, Evan. Philanthropy oh. to me is a sandbox for many, many things, entrepreneurship, values, you know, connectedness. It's just really, really important. Thank you. And Michael, yeah. if, if you want another resource, um, you know, you spoke about earlier research that I was involved in. Um, I was involved in the 100-year study with Dennis Jaffe, and Dennis and I and Isabel Lassent co-authored a book looking, I specifically wrote the, the section of how, what are the best practices we learned from families that are able to carry their wealth across four generations as it relates to philanthropy. So, um, you know, maybe that's also a book that you can link. I can send you the link of that. That'd be great. What's the title of the book? You know, you should, I should know what the title of my own book is, right? So let <laughs> me get the right title. Social Impact in 100-Year Family Businesses, How Family Values Drive Sustainability Through Philanthropy, Impact Investing, and Corporate Social Responsibility. Love it. Love it, love it, love it. Yeah, send me a link to that. We'll get those links onto the website. Evan, Jamie, you guys are wonderful. This has been such a great conversation. And I hope that each of you that are listening, you know, go out to their website and, and, and take a, you know, dig into deeper conversations. Um, have the courage, be curious and communicate with your spouse around these areas. And if you happen to be, um, you know, a financially diverse couple um, willing to be part of Jamie and Evan's, you know, study, um, they would greatly appreciate it. Matter of fact, you know, the world would appreciate it because there's other people that are having these conversations and the tools aren't out there for the therapists and the psychologists and the family, you know, uh, members that, to deal with these things. So thank you both for your time today. Really, really, really appreciate the work that you're doing. My name's Michael Columbus I'm with Family Wealth and Legacy in Rochester, New York. And we look forward to having you on another episode of the Family Biz Show. Take care, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Family Biz Show. We appreciate your time and trust to deliver the best guests and most cutting edge information to help you maximize your family business. Being part of a family is tough. Add a business to that and it gets even tougher. Tune in next week as we strive to ease your journey with the Family Biz Show. The content presented is for informational and educational purposes. The information covered and posted are views and opinions of the guests and not necessarily those of Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation. Michael Columbus is a registered representative of Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation. Securities and investment advisory services offered through Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation, a broker-dealer, member SIPC, and registered investment advisor. Insurance offered through Lincoln Financial Affiliates and other fine companies. Family Wealth and Legacy, LLC, is not an affiliate of Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation. Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation and its representatives do not provide legal or tax advice. You may want to consult a legal or tax advisor regarding any legal or tax information as it relates to your personal circumstances.